You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Strong Towns. Chuck, how are you doing this morning? I know you just got back from a trip to Carlton Landing, Oklahoma. How was that? Yeah, that was fantastic. Actually, it was amazing. I um, I was really, I, I have to say, I was very surprised. Um, I've been to a, a number of new urbanist developments, and I, I think you'd categorize this as one. And for the most part, um, these kind of things tend to be more uh, done by architects and dreamers who have like great visual ideas for for the way things should be, but but tend to not get like the underlying financial stuff of it. And I kind of wind up like cringing because I'm like, oh, this is nice, but it doesn't actually work. Uh, a lot of those done before 2008, you know, didn't survive or survived in very bad ways uh, since then. This one actually got started around like 2008, 2009. And so got started right in the, in kind of the, the beginnings of the difficulty for housing. And my gosh, I was deeply impressed, not only with the, the standard stuff, the architecture, the layout, the design, it's gorgeous, but the way that they're phasing it, the way they're doing the financials, the way they're uh, going about making it a, a really viable development, not only for the developer, but particularly for the community and the people that are living there. It's really a model. And I was, I was deeply impressed. I, I'm going to write about it at some point here in the future and I'll have more coherent thoughts then, but yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Okay, good. Was it fairly small? Like how many people live there? Uh, that's a really good question. Yeah, it, it's fairly small at this point. I mean, I, I think maybe a population of 400, 500. Um, oh, wow. Okay. That, that's pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's going to be, you know, 5,000, 6,000 plus in a, in a relatively decent period of time. I, I think the interesting things and one of the interesting dynamics of it is that it's sited and located so that it is right now kind of a vacation spot. It's it's almost like a, a resort community. Uh, people hmm. that were there largely, and I, I asked people, and they said probably 80% of people uh, are, come on weekends only, and only 20% live there all, you know, all week, all year round. That That's their residence. In time... Hmm. So it's like a... These are like second homes then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, 80% of them, second homes. Yeah. Um, very so interesting, though, because they're... Wealthy. No, the, I was going to say the, the price points of them are very different. Um, it, I mean, certainly not uh, like low price points, but, you know, you could a couple of years ago get into a place there for around 200000 Okay. And with the mm -hmm. rental pool thing they've got, you actually can pay for a good sizable chunk of your mortgage payment through putting it in this rental pool and having it available as essentially like a resort place. Hmm. And so, yeah, it, it, it's, it is, 
how do I describe this? Here in Minnesota, when we have like a resort, the thing they do is they mine the shoreline for like really kind of base kind of gains. So you put all your units right along the shoreline and then you're selling kind of exclusive access to the shoreline as part of the deal. That's always struck me as ridiculous because when you travel around the world, I mean, I've spent some time in the Lake District in England and the Lake District in in, uh, north of Italy and... What they've done is they've essentially made the shoreline a community asset, and then all the development is back from that. And, and what it does, you know, some people look at it as like a utopian thing. Oh, it's nice. Everybody shares the shoreline. No. Um, yeah, great. What you've actually done is you've made, instead of just one tier of properties really wealthy and then everybody else kind of, you know, on the scrap heap. What you've done is you've reflected the value of that massive asset, the lake, back thousand feet. You know, so so all of these properties are worth a, a lot, and it's actually a really smart strategy. I mean, this is parks in cities. You know, great parks are actually designed in this kind of way as well. Uh, so, you know, they've done a really good job of using the assets that they have and phasing this development in a way that has made the properties really valuable, but not at like, like crazy price points. So yeah. yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's very interesting. And I actually don't want to do a real long write up about it. Cause there are a ton of lessons here. That's how the lakes are, at least around the neighborhood that I grew up in Minneapolis. They're like public walking, biking trails and there's beaches, but then there's still these massive houses around that I'm sure are like millions of dollars, but it's still something that like everybody can use, like oh, you said. Okay, but if you look at Minneapolis, it's like a prime example. Those mm-hmm. lakes were developed right. prior They're not to real, yeah, naturally occurring lakes. Well, mm-hmm. but but they were, but those places were built essentially pre-automobile, pre you know suburban experiment. They mm-hmm. were developed at a time when developers understood how to create like this long lasting value for more than just, you know, the properties along the shoreline. It was, it was more about, okay, as a developer, you make the most money off of the last properties to sell. So you make the most money off of the properties that are going to be the furthest from the lake. The way you make those properties really, really valuable is you make that entire community really valuable. And that creates a whole different incentive for developers than what exists today. Today, and and if you look outside of you know the those lakes in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul that have been developed that way, you go out to you know Lake Minnetonka, you go out to some of the other lakes around. What you see is that they've been developed on the the new model, which is you make your money on carving up the shoreline and selling it at a premium, mm-hmm. and then you you don't worry about the next year and the next year and the next year, and of course the city you know, for a variety of reasons, doesn't seem to care about those properties as well, even though they're providing them service at a premium price and they're squandering the value of them. We have, we have statewide zoning in Minnesota for all properties within a thousand feet of a lake. And so we have essentially set up and, um, you know, on a statewide basis and mandated this squandering of our resources as like the default option. If if you wanted to build a great city that actually created a ton of value and preserved, shore, you know, massive amounts of shoreline, you, you couldn't do it. It's not, 
it's not allowed. It, it's not part of the process. And if you if you can't went about trying to do it, there would be so much environmental pushback. It'd, it'd be crazy. Yet that's mm. the way you actually you know make lakes ecologically function and financially function. Yeah, because it would seem like if there's a whole city that cares about a lake instead of just a few property owners who happen to have a house on the lake, there's more likelihood that you know there's going to be better environmental efforts to preserve it if if it's a community asset, like you said. Yeah, and and we have this you know we have this mindset in Minnesota that lakes are public property. I mean, right. if, even if you own all the land around a lake, if I can helicopter in and land on that lake, I'm on public property. So. We, we've 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 noted that there's value in kind of the, the communal nature of these properties. Yet, when we cross over the ordinary high water mark and get onto the land, uh, we've really mined it for short-term gain, and kind of lost that mindset of you know what makes these places great. This is an interesting topic. I think this would be worth writing about perhaps more on the website. I, I've written about it. It was kind of cool because I've written about it in the past. I mean, if you go way back in the archives, I wrote a lot about this kind of stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, in the early days of Strong Towns, I essentially had worked for a number of years as a shoreline zoner. Um, I mean, I, I, I was working for recreational communities that had this statewide mandated zoning and I was trying to make it work and make it work better and, you know, find ways to uh, to use these rules to to have decent outcomes. And mm-hmm. some of my early frustration was with that. So the, the early writings of Strong Towns have a lot of that. I haven't done it so much lately, but this Carlton Landing experience had me kind of rethinking some of those things. And so, yeah, maybe I should – I will for sure write about Carlton Landing. And maybe circle around and try to hit some of these broader points, too. So it sounded like your trip to Carlton Landing was a bit of an inspiration for the post that you wrote for this morning about road funding, federal, state, local. Um, tell me <laughs> about that connection uh, I, it was the post. <laughs> well, it, it was, yeah. I, anytime you, you travel like this, I mean, I had hours of travel between here and, and there and then uh, an, an evening by, you know, a couple evenings in a hotel and then, uh, travel back. So I have a lot of like downtime. And I, last week there was, a, a a lot of different places, a lot of organizations that we kind of are, are friends with and allies with. And, you know, one of our board members in particular encouraging me to get involved in this rule change that's being proposed at the federal level. And, Really, in a short synopsis, the rule change is to supposed to change how we monitor congestion and how we report on congestion so that ostensibly we would build highways and, and streets differently in the federal system mm-hmm. and, you know, be less obsessed with the, the kind of silly metrics we have today and more worried about things like auto emissions and what have you. And so I was I was being urged to go through this rule and you know comment on it and then you know encourage all of our audience and all of our members to write their senators and write their congress you know representatives and get them to you know make force changes to this rule because the rule's not doing what it's supposed to do. I read it and I mean this is a it was a very like painful exercise. Um 
I, I walked away from it going, this is a colossal waste of time. I mean, it, I, the, the name of the piece was rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, which is a, an overused saying, but it's, it's a saying meant to say like, look, this is a sinking ship. This is not the way to go about fixing this or dealing with this. And all you're doing are superficial changes mm-hmm. to a, a failed system. And I'm, I'm, you know, I've always been skeptical of large, you know, federal systems trying to do small, complex, lo- you know, hyper-local things. And this was just like a case study in that. You know, one of the things I pointed out in the piece, uh, I, I, I just excerpted this one part. And I, I realized, you know, as I was driving in today, like not everyone may get why this is so absurd. But I, I, I excerpted this one part and it had this like mathematical formula for how to calculate the 50th percentile congestion rate and then the 80th percentile. And then you divide one by the other. And, and a whole lot of jargon, too. Yeah, well, a whole lot of jargon. But it's a rule, so I can excuse them for the jargon, you know. Yeah. Um, but the thing that was just absurd was it said, you know, report, these, the, report this data based on two, you know, to the second decimal point. And I, I read that, and I'm like, th- this is so stupid. Like, how <laughs> – and I was trying to think of, like, what, it, what would be an analogy that I would, uh, you know, give – people to help them realize how stupid this was. And I came up with the notion that, well, okay, let, let's say we, you know, took a, a, a stadium full of people and as they walked by, we like measured how tall they were. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, wrote that down. And then at the end we took, you know, the average of people uh, who were, you know, a certain age group versus the, you know, the average of everybody and then divided one by the other. And then we said, we want that like to the two decimal points. You, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Do you see what I'm saying? Like you, you're, the, the measurements that you're using to, to measure this are so coarse. The volume of data you've got is so ridiculously coarse. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, you pretend you have some accuracy to the two decimal points. All you're doing is, is making the whole process a mockery. I mean, it's just a joke, really. And it it creates this kind of veneer that you actually know what you're doing just by adding a couple decimal points. And some math. (laughs) Yeah, you're just making stuff up. There there was a great article last week about economists. And I'm I'm actually going to research this because I had never heard about this before. The the guy who wrote the article actually um, had some knowledge of Chinese history, particularly with astrology. And he contended, and I'd never heard this before, which is why I want to read about it. He contended that at one point in Chinese history, astrology was like the science. And it was the thing that all the rulers used to make decisions. And you know, that's not surprising, you know, different civilizations have have used that. But what is surprising about it is that the Chinese were mathematically very advanced. I mean, they had Pythagorean theorem before, you know, before the Greeks, Uh, they had a a whole bunch of very advanced mathematical things. They could predict eclipses and what have you. And what they did is they used this like really intense math to refine their astrological models. 
So in other words, you know, start with like a crazy assumption, like the alignment of certain stars will predict whether you'll be victorious in battle or not. Yeah. And you start with that as like your insane assumption, right? And then you create this whole cadre of, of people who use like beautiful, elegant mathematics to essentially like prove and show when the stars will be aligned. And what it does is it gives like the whole thing, like this veneer of, uh, you know, science of like validity, like, oh, this, you know, look, they're using complex equations. They must know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. When in fact, like the foundational basis of it is ridiculous. The foundational basis of this congestion uh, rule is that by, by, by fighting congestion, we actually lower emissions. And I, I think the theory is that when cars are sitting stuck in congestion, they're not moving anywhere and there's, you know, emissions coming out of their tailpipe. And right. so, you know, your emissions per mile traveled is really bad. And so we need to address that. Well, anyone with any common sense realizes that when you go out and you make it easier for people to drive places, like you, you, know, you reduce congestion by making intersections easier to get through or building interchanges uh, or putting in turn lanes. So, so vehicles flow more quickly. What it does is it just tells people to drive more. I mean, go ahead and drive more. There's no cost of congestion now to doing that. And the idea that that reduces emissions is just a ridiculous uh, prospect, but we've added two decimal points. So now we're scientific (laughs) about it. Right. Exactly. So it's just stupid. It, it was dumb, dumb, dumb. And I actually was mad, mad and grumpy with myself for wasting time on it. As when, you stated. In yeah, I should have just it told people this is stupid off the bat and just ignore it, you know? Yeah, this issue of local versus federal control of roads uh, is, is reminding me of a podcast that I did during Strong Citizens Week. And I don't know, you probably didn't have a chance to listen to it, but... This woman that I interviewed who works in Atlanta and was helping this whole slew of amazing ethnic restaurants kind of organize and make their neighborhood better. But they're all along this quote unquote highway, um, but this highway that's running through residential neighborhoods um, in the Atlanta area and, you know, has all these restaurants that would be grocery stores that would be great to walk to. Um, and yet it's like this really dangerous stroke that no one wants to be on. And I asked her about, like, what can we do to change this? And she was like, well, it's a state federal highway. Yeah. Uh, can't do anything about it. We're stuck. Yeah. It's just, like, so frustrating and illogical to me. Well, and if you look, um, a couple of years ago, I did learn this. And I had heard about this, but I learned more about it this weekend when I was researching this. A couple of years ago, a whole bunch of essentially that kind of strode were put on the federal list uh, as part of the federal system. And, you know, yay, this made them eligible for all kinds of other funding things Mm -hmm. that uh, they, they weren't otherwise eligible for. Uh, But it also, you know, requires them now to, in an absolute sense, follow a whole bunch of ridiculous federal standards, which apply really well when you're dealing with, highways that are moving you from one place to another in an interstate commerce kind of way. But don't make any sense when you're talking about dividing neighborhoods and, you know, local trips that people would make. But because we're chasing the funding, uh, this was widely embraced as like a great move because, 
wow, now we're eligible for different Free funding money. sources. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you realize that the, the, the very difficult part we've, got, we've gotten ourselves into is that we've built more of this infrastructure than we either you know, have the money to maintain or are willing to spend the money to maintain. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, I, I think we have more than we can actually pay for. We, we certainly, without a question, have more than we are going to be willing to pay for. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be willing to spend a whole ton of money fixing stuff that provides no value. And it's going to be really hard to get people to pay for that kind of stuff. Well, that is a large percentage of our system. I mean, really, it's a really, really large percentage of our system. So we have this problem where we can't get the money but, you know, because they really should be localized uh, decisions and localized revenue. But if you actually localize it, most of these systems will fall apart and go away because no one will be willing to spend their money to fix them. And that is a real – we're treating it like it's a financial problem and we're treating it like it's a, a political problem. But it's really a social cultural problem. We have to figure out how to deal with – contraction. We have to figure out how to deal with a system that is bigger than, than what makes sense. And I'm not going to pretend that I have that answer, but I, I think that that is actually the question as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, how do we get more money to continue to pretend that we can, we can do this. So I want to take a moment to mention several new members that joined us this week, and I have a hunch that some of them joined because we have started a book club where we're going to talk about um, the book Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb, and Chuck's going to be leading that. Um, but this is for members only, so I think this is why we had uh, several new members this week. Uh, Zeph Campbell from Burlington, Kentucky, Tom Christoffel from Front Royal, Virginia, Jordan Clark from Dallas, Texas, Jamie Fearer from San Jose, California, Timothy Keith from Washington, D.C., Asia Kerf from Memphis, Tennessee, Andrew Moore from Hen Henrico, Virginia, Zachary Pritchard from McAllister, Oklahoma, Jeff Summerhill from Denver, Colorado, Brian Tanner from Mishawaka, Indiana, um, Michelle Truitt from Utica, New York, David Wade from Eugene, Oregon, and Eric Zoso from Valparaiso, Indiana. Welcome, everybody. Um, Chuck, do you want to say anything about that book club really quick? We haven't talked about <laughs> yeah, it on the I do. Um, I'm looking up right now to see, because I, I actually thought we'd have like a dozen people sign up. Um, we have right now a hundred and eight people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah, which is which is fantastic. But it does kind of change things a little bit. So, so for those of you that are not with us on Slack, we have a couple hundred people now uh, plus who are on Slack with us. And Slack is a uh for those of you that don't know, it's it's like a a program that mashes up chat with email. Uh, we've basically been able to get rid of a lot of our email by, by moving things to Slack. And uh, you know, we have a lot of different conversations going on there, different topics, different issues. People can start their own and, and it's a great place for our members and our audience to meet and, and talk about these issues in a pretty cool way. We're there, you know, I'm there, you're there, Jason, Yuri, Michelle, all of us are on there. And so you know, we take part in the conversations and, and what have you. I, 
there's a lot of people who have asked me about Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, because I recommend it as like an essential read for Strong Towns advocates. It's not an easy read. It, it is a, it, 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 in some ways, it, it's a tough read. He is, a, you know, kind of an obscure thinker. He's a random thinker. His book kind of reflects that. He insisted that not be edited by anyone. He wrote it intentionally to not be able to be skimmed because he hates reporters asking superficial questions. And it's kind of like he wants to weed out people who have read it from people who haven't. So I suggested let's have a, let's use one of these Slack channels to have an anti-fragile book club. And let's, you know, assign, you know, like a few chapters a month. Let's read them. And then let's come here and have a chat about them. And I thought there'd be like a, a dozen people, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I figured that I would write like a piece on it and use that as kind of the basis of, of starting the conversation. With 100 plus people now, uh, we're going to do this a little bit differently. I mean, we're still going to read the book. We're still going to have a chat on it. But I'm going to actually put out some questions for people to ponder and to think about and actually invite people to write their own pieces, to put their own kind of reactions and thoughts together as a way to prime this conversation. So hopefully we'll be able to run some of those as content on Strong Towns and kind of aggregate them into a site where we can have a whole bunch of different interpretations and reactions to anti-fragile in a Strong Towns context. And then I think we're going to have to have this discussion go on longer than just a couple hours in discrete times. I think it's going to have to be an ongoing conversation we have. And so, yeah, it's, it's cool to have a hundred plus, you know, people who mm-hmm. like generally are going to be thoughtful and intelligent talking about something that I deeply care about. Yeah. This is a nice thing about Slack. You can, you know, sit on there for an hour and have a great conversation with people, or you can tune out for a couple of days and jump back on and there will undoubtedly be something going on. So that sounds like a good format for this. And your first post kind of introducing the book will be tomorrow afternoon. So everyone should check that out. Um, I want to make one small request of our listeners. Um, this podcast for many of you is listened to through iTunes and, um, on iTunes, you can rate podcasts. Um, now this isn't really anything that we've like pushed or asked people to do, but uh, it is something that makes a big difference in how our podcast shows up on search results and things like that. Um, so if you would just take five seconds today, go on to iTunes and give us a rating, however you want to rate us. Um, you can just give a star rating or you can uh, add a comment if you wish. Um, that would make a big difference in being able to spread the Strong Towns message and get that podcast uh, a little bit farther out there. So we would appreciate if you do that. Just so, just to note too, our, you know, we, we get okay metrics on the podcast. We get really great metrics on the website in terms of knowing, uh, you know, how many people are reading our stuff, what, what, what they're reading, how frequently, you know, sharing. Yeah. Uh, the, Likes, comments. Yeah. We, we get really, you know, fairly, fairly good metrics. We don't get very, you know, we don't get anywhere near that thorough metrics on the, the podcast. The podcast has always been kind of this enigma out there because for a long time, I didn't even know if anybody listened and cause I got no feedback, no metrics. And I would show up places and I'd run into all these people who said, Oh, I love the podcast. Oh, I listen to the podcast. And uh, one of my favorite you ones, thought you were just talking to yourself. Right? I, I was for a long time. Um, 
we do have audience numbers on the podcast. And the really fascinating thing is that, you know, we are getting towards the end of April. Our podcast audience right now is double what it was uh, January 1st. And what That's it was fantastic. January 1st was, yeah, double what it was like the prior August. So we're in a, a, a really good trend here. And it's great that all of you are, are sharing this and letting other people know about it. But if you can go to iTunes and, and give us a review, uh, those things from a, a, a metric standpoint really help us to to kind of exponentially grow. When people are listening to podcasts that are, are similar to ours, when ours has a high rating, iTunes will put it in front of other people and say, hey, you like that. There's a whole bunch of people who like this. You may like this too. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, a big part of how we're going to grow this movement. So if you can do that for us, we would be so thankful. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, well, I think that's all we have time for today. Um, but take care, everyone, and have a great week. All right, take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.